Uh, greetings and welcome. My name is Michael Le Chevalier and I am the Associate Director of the Lumen Christi Institute. Um, it's been an exciting week of programs that we have been putting on. Um, and before turning to tonight's event, I do want to call your uh, attention to an um, uh, uh, exciting event that we're hosting next week. Um, on Tuesday, June 9th at 1 p.m., do note uh, the different time, we will be holding a moderated conversation on Christians in times of catastrophe, Augustine's City of God. Um, this will be featuring Jen Frey as our moderator um, and Father Michael Sherwin and Russ Hittinger. Um, now, these, this specific event is um, actually exciting for me because uh, it is giving you a taste, not just for the type of lectures that we're um, holding at uh, the Lumen Christi Institute, um, every week, but also our summer seminars. Um, each summer we host uh, three, sometimes four, sometimes five, sometimes even seven or eight summer seminars for graduate students um, to expose them to different aspects of the Catholic intellectual tradition. And every other summer we have a summer seminar on the City of God that has been co-taught by Father Michael Sherwin and Russ Hittinger. Um, so I would invite you to join us next week um, to get this taste for the type of programming that we offer for doctoral students um, to help build in the capacity for them to be going on to teach the city of God wherever they may land um, their jobs. Uh, and it's hard to actually believe now that we are at the last lecture of our series on reason and wisdom in medieval thought. Um, this has actually been a real experiment for us at Lumen Christi over the last two and a half months. Um, never before have we provided any sort of live streamed or online events. And who would have guessed that it would take um, a pandemic for this to happen? Um, and who would have thought that it would be medieval Christian thought that with which we'd start our pivot? Um, while this is the last lecture of our series, um, we won't end here. And we're excited to announce a new series co-organized in fact with the American Kuzana Society of which David Albertson, our, pre our, our presenter tonight, is president. I'll leave it to Rob and David um, to later describe this event. Now, if you wanna support our work to bring the Catholic intellectual tradition to graduate students, future professors, to undergraduates, and to our broader culture, you can support our work at www.lumenchristi.org slash donate. Um, you are also able to support us by simply sharing word um, helping get um, word further out about these events, either by email, by tweeting it, um, by sharing our posts on Facebook. Um, you can be the promoters for us, um, helping to transmit the Catholic intellectual tradition. Uh, with that, I'll get out of the way and hand it over to Rob, who's helped to bring this series together um, to introduce our speaker and uh, take it from here, Rob. Thank you, Michael. Indeed, we're coming to the end of this long uh, nine-part series on Medieval, uh, medieval thought, particularly on looking at contemplative and spiritual ways of seeking the face of God. If you're just joining us or if you're coming in uh, midway, you can find a lot of these, uh, almost all of these presentations on YouTube and see, and see some of the great presentations hitherto. As Michael also indicated, uh, we're very pleased to have a kind of sequel series taking place in, uh, in uh, partnership with the American Kuzana Society. Uh, reason and Beauty in Renaissance Thought, Christian Thought, from around 1350 to around 1600. Topics will include such things as 
or such persons as, as Dante, uh, women humanist authors and thinkers, uh, the artistic thought of, of Alberti, the art of Titian, and many other very interesting topics. Uh, I would like to point out the first episode of this will be Tuesday, June 16th at 7 p.m. Central, where uh, uh, Jason Alexander and Ariel Saver will speak to us on Dante as poet and philosopher, and very interesting. During tonight's presentation, at any time you can ask a question using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. At the end of the presentation, I'll, host, uh, I'll help uh, moderate a, a Q&A session with Professor Albertson. I'd like now to introduce Professor Albertson. Professor David Albertson comes to us from the University of Southern California, where he teaches theology, religion, medieval history and thought in the Department of Religion there. Uh, he's widely published on Nicholas of Cusa and actually has a, a work in progress entitled Cusanus Today or Cusa Today, which is very interesting, something to keep our eyes out for, and has taken a leading role in this new, uh, new series uh, that I was just speaking about. For that reason, it's very fitting to have Professor Albertson with us to finish off this series tonight. Uh, Professor Albertson, I'd like to invite you to uh, turn on your mic and, and turn on your camera at this time. Wonderful, great. And I'll hand it over to you. Thank you very much, Robert. And thank you for the invitation to speak. I've been enjoying and benefiting from this series and we're excited that we can continue it um, in the Renaissance series to, to come. It's a little daunting to follow a teacher of mine, Professor McGinn from uh, the Meister Eckhart lecture from I think the last one. Um, but um, it was in one of Professor McGinn's seminars where he said, maybe you should take a look at this fellow, Nicholas of Cusa. And I wasn't sure who that was. So I went and did some reading and, and that's the rest of the story for me. But I'm, I'm hoping tonight to share um, some of my interest in this important figure with you all. See if we can get our slides up here. And um, to share why Nicholas is such an important figure and maybe not one with the kind of, uh, um, you know, name recognition as some of the other authors that we've heard from already in the series, but one who's really important and uh, I think is getting more and more um, uh, recognition, especially in the American scholarly world. Um, so let's jump right in. I'd like to talk today about Nicholas of Cusa, about some of his, you know, first of all, why be interested in him? Um, what does he bring to the table in terms of some of the themes that we've been considering previously in the seminar? And then a little bit about his life, and I'll show you some pictures from the part of the world he came from. And then we'll look at his works just to kind of as an orientation and then get to our theme finally of Nicholas of Cusa on reason and wisdom. It's a very fruitful uh, theme and a very fruitful question to ask. How does he put together these two uh, parts of, of, of anthropology, these two parts of uh, human faculties of wisdom, reason, or maybe better said, how does he talk about how to use reason wisely? And for Nicholas, a lot of this is attending to the limits of reason both in the sense of what reason can and cannot do, um, and also the limits in terms of the proximity of reason to a higher function in his view of the intellect, the part that makes contact with the divine in mystical contemplation. Nicholas of Cusa's dates are 1401 to 1464, easy to remember. And you see um, uh, an illustration on the right 
of Nicholas with his cardinal's hat on. So he was a bishop and cardinal um, from the, you know, in the German Empire, but uh, spent a lot of his career in Italy and in Rome, spent the last several years of his life in Rome. But first of all, let's come think about um, a, a great text I always like to begin with on Nicholas. Uh, it gives you a sense of his approach to things. This is from a dialogue he wrote in 1444, very much consciously in the sense of a platonic dialogue. And, but the, the uh, participants here are who he calls the pagan and the Christian, uh, the non-believer the non and the Christian believer. This is from the beginning. I see you prostrated most devoutly and weeping tears of love, not false tears, but from the heart. Tell me who you are, says the pagan. The Christian, I am a Christian. What are you worshiping? God. Who is the God you worship? I do not know, says the Christian. How can you so earnestly worship that which you do not know? The Christian, it is because I do not know that I worship. So I think that's a great place to begin because it's for Nicholas, it's um, what uh, the, the, the sort of, negative theology that he promotes very much in the tradition of pseudo-Dionysius uh, that he's excited about is always in the service of prayer and even uh, given his uh, homilies and his office we should always remember as a bishop and a cardinal not just as a sort of university philosopher which he never was remember the liturgical context as well so a couple contexts. I mean, Nicholas of Cusa, one of the great joys of studying his works and his life is that he brings together so many different themes from the period and this pivotal moment in, 15, in the 15th century uh, in the intellectual history of Christian traditions in the West. He brings together mysticism and Platonism. He was a great Neoplatonist and a great sort of synthesis of a whole variety of Neoplatonist sources. So he's in contact not just with Plato's dialogues by this time, um, but medieval Platonism, he also knew Proclus, he knew Pseudo-Dionysius very well, so he's able to synthesize many of these things together. But Nicholas was someone who had an interesting relationship to the schools, to the universities. He was twice invited by the University of Louvain uh, to take up a chair in canon law, and twice he refused, so he did not pursue an academic career quite deliberately he also had no formal philosophical training. He was trained as a canon lawyer. And uh, at the same time, he had remarkable abilities as a humanist, as a manuscript hunter. He discovered lost plays of Plautus. He was famous in his day even for that. And he also, interestingly enough, kept always in contact with learned monks who were also themselves not in the universities, but who were a circle of Benedictines uh, in uh, Bavaria at the time were among the first readers of his works. And the, the, the reception history of Nicholas of Cusa's most challenging philosophical works begins with uh, communities of uh, monks. Nicholas also has an important role in the history of conciliarism and the great debate between the councils and the popes in the 14th and 15th centuries, and of course the 16th. And uh, Nicholas uh, took part in the Council of Basel he then allied himself with Pope Eugenius IV when the council broke down and was a papal legate and eventually made cardinal um, later in his life. 
So he uh, also has a lot to contribute in questions of what is reform? What does it mean uh, to be concerned with reform in the Catholic Church in the 15th, 16th century, 15th century? Nicholas has broad interests, broad intellectual interest. He references contemporary painters in some works. He talks about optics, theories of perspective. He was uh, very interested in measurement and scientific instrumentation at this time. In mathematics, he was actually a kind of amateur mathematician. And the mathematicians of, of his day uh, were not always enthused with his attempts, but um, he wrote several treatises, as I'll share in a moment, uh, of actual geometrical proofs, as well as thinking about the significance of how the mind encounters the world mathematically. And Nicholas was ahead of his time um, in, in a religious dialogue, and dialogue in particular with Islam. And I'll share the titles of some of the work. This is a uh, fresh area of research in Kazana studies. and something that there's a lot of uh, great scholarship on today. If we're thinking about his broader significance before getting into the details of his life, there's a, a number of reasons why scholars have returned, especially around the late 19th century um, to Nicholas and to kind of a rediscovery that happened in the 1880s, 1890s, uh, especially among circles of neo-Kantians in Germany who suddenly rediscovered Nicholas and said, you know, here is someone who's really a pivotal figure. And we start to get these uh, stories of, of a sort of narrative going, which is not false, but how Nicholas is a kind of hinge figure uh, in this, you know, the double meaning of cardiness, but a hinge figure between the Middle Ages and early modernity or between the Middle Ages and Renaissance. So he, he is a medieval figure, but he is a medieval figure who's sort of uh, sometimes depicted as kind of a Moses looking out into the you know, the next stage of, uh, of intellectual history. In his context, in the 16th century, in the 17th century, Nicholas was first esteemed as the great reader of Pseudo-Dionysius, the kind of greatest Renaissance commentator and utilizer of Dionysian wisdom in terms of negative theology. By uh, Hermann Cohen and Ernst Cassirer, these philosophers at the turn of the 20th century, he was first hailed as the first modern philosopher, i.e. going back before Descartes, someone who was interested in the way that mathematics could unlock the secrets of the cosmos uh, and be a sort of first principle for philosophy, but to do so 200 years before Descartes, 150 years. Later uh, readers, Hansaris von Balthasar and Louis Dupre, um, viewed Nicholas as holding together, in Dupre's uh, version, the great ontotheological synthesis of the Middle Ages, the last figure who was able to look at the new knowledge of the sciences, to think about the, you know, the, the first beginning of the 15th century Renaissance, and to still hold together this medieval synthesis without it breaking down into you know, nominalism, the competition among the schools, uh, the new methods, and so forth. Uh, another framework for understanding Nicholas is, comes with Hans Blumenberg, the great German philosopher and historian of philosophy, who poses you know, this idea, very influential, that Nicholas stands on one side of modernity and Giordano Bruno stands on the other side. They're very similar. Bruno was a great reader of Cusanus, had great esteem for Cusanus, but disagreed in many important ways. And, Bruno's, uh, and, and Blumenberg says that when modernity happens, somewhere between Nicholas of Cusa and Giordano Bruno. And Karsten Harris, the great Yale historian, um, uh, sort of reformulated this idea in a way that I find helpful. He says, Nicholas 
teaches us how to consider not just the legitimacy of modernity, that was Blumenberg's line, but also the limits of modernity. And if we are in a period of late modernity or post-modernity, as some would have it, Nicholas becomes a specifically a very important guide to our own transition. And lastly, just uh, recently, and this is part of the work of the volume that Robert alluded to, um, there's some questions now among uh, uh, some French philosophers, especially Jean-Luc Marion, figure very uh, well known to Lumen Christie's audience, and Emmanuel Falk, also in the same way, who are both recently uh, written essays investigating Nicholas of Cusa, and particularly his great mystical work on the vision of God, 1453, De Visioni Dei. Uh, there's a sense that uh, beginning uh, with Michel de Certeau, that Nicholas was on to something in the way he thought about vision, and even the way he thought about iconicity, that's so important for phenomenology today, that in some way did Nicholas anticipate the theological turn in phenomenology. Okay, so let's go back now to Nicholas's life. And I'd like to give you a little bit of a tour. We're gonna go back and trace out some steps of uh, uh, where he came from, what part of the world. This is the tomb where Nicholas is buried in San Pietro in Vincoli. This is his titular church in Rome as a cardinal. You can see St. Peter in the middle. And this figure to just to his left, on our left here is Nicholas of Cusa with this cardinal's hat frame. Now, Nicholas asked that his body be buried in the tomb. We can zoom in here. But he also asked in his will that his heart be carried out, be brought out of his body, and brought back to his home where he uh, was born, to his home city, and be reposed there in a hospice that he founded with his estate after his death, which is still there today, called the Saint Nicholas, the, uh, not the Saint, the Nicholas of Cusa Hospital, the Cusanas Hospital. Let's uh, take a look. So here is uh, a bend uh, of the Mosel River, a branch of the Rhine. This is in the western side of Germany, west of Frankfurt, south of Cologne, near Luxembourg. And uh, the Moselle is a great wine-growing region, you can see maybe in some of the hillsides. There's a bend in the river, and there's little two twin towns, Kuz and Berncastle. It's called Berncastle Kuz on the maps today. You can visit it. It's a wonderful first place to visit and take a, a tour down the, the Mosul River, and maybe even taste some of the wines. Nicholas is from this town of Kuz in Germany. His Geburtshaus, the house he was born in, is still preserved today. You can visit it as something of a little Kuzanis museum. Nicholas was born Nikolaus Kripz, or Krebs, in the town of Berncastle Kuz. That's where we get this, uh, this term, Nicholas of Kuza, this, this name. But he was known as an early humanist um, in his university days. He introduced himself with, as one did with the humanist moniker, you know, Nicholas Kanzer. This is Krebs, the crab of Kuz, or Nicholas of Trier, where he did some of his early work as a canon lawyer. And then finally, eventually, as Kuzanis. So sometimes I'll refer to him as Kuzanis, sometimes Nicholas of Kuza. We can call him simply Nicholas. Here is the coat of arms that he eventually adopted as a cardinal with the crab single, uh, 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 seal, the crab symbol. Uh, this is, you can see on the uh, facade of the house here, the Kibbutz house. So if we continued our voyage down the Moselle, we'd see now this uh, church 
and the Hospital, which Nicholas founded for 33 older men to live out their lives in, 33 in honor of the age of Jesus, of course. And if you were to tour inside and walk down these hallways, you would find yourself in a chapel. And in the chapel is an altar. On the altar is an altarpiece. If you zoom in at the foot of the cross of one of the thieves, you see Mary Magdalene, of course, but also Nicholas and his attendant, his secretary, Nicholas there. So this is where we get this image that we use today. This is from this, this work of art, a painting uh, relatively contemporary in the decades after his death of Nicholas. So we have some sense, not exactly a photograph, but something rare here for the 15th century to have such a nice portrait. Nicholas had his education a year at Heidelberg, where he would have been introduced to the different scholastic via, the different ways, the different schools of thought um, uh, coming out of the Thomism and the, and the Scotus tradition, the Albertist tradition, and so forth, and also the Via Moderna, the new nominalist tradition. So he had some sense of the lay of the land in his contemporary intellectual culture. But then he went to the University of Padua in Italy and studied canon law. And he trained there for several years. At the time, he would have also been introduced to figures like Paolo Toscanelli, the mathematician. There's some thought that he might have crossed paths with Alberti. We don't know that for certain, but there's good new scholarship on that. Um, and then following that time, when he probably learned some about mathematics and a lot about law and a little bit about theology, he treated himself to a year at the University of Cologne. And there he studied with a master who was just about a decade older than him named Heinrich de Campo. And Heinrich introduced Nicholas to Dionysius, to Dionysius, to Albert the Great, to the Neoplatonist tradition. And this is where um, he really oriented himself. It's, he might have been sent to Paris by Heinrich in 1428 to look up some manuscripts. This is important in his own intellectual development where he encountered the manuscripts of Raymond Lowell, the great Catalan philosopher and theologian. Nicholas was sent to the Council of Basel as a canon lawyer, first for the conciliarist cause. And then by the end of it, seeing the disarray in 1437, he abruptly switched parties and joined the papalist party of Eugenius IV. And you know, the conciliarists uh, who continued after Basel never quite forgave him for that. And he was sort of notorious and viewed as a uh, political opportunist of some kind but um, it seems to be something that was heartfelt and important to him. And he talks about uh, a new understanding of the papacy and the council working in harmony in some of his later works. Nicholas took a fateful journey to the East, sent by Eugenius IV to try to enter into dialogue with the Eastern churches, Orthodox Christianity in 1437-38. And he says on the voyage home, he had a vision on the sea voyage home, a vision of how to understand incomprehensibles incomprehensibly. And he writes this as a prefatory letter to his great work of 1440 that we'll look at, De Doctor Ignorantia. So it's literally, you know, uh, looks ex oriente. It's a vision that he has of uh, inspiration and illumination on his voyage home from dialogue with Christians in the Eastern churches. By the late 1440s, he was elevated to bishop and cardinal in Rome. He was uh, sent on a reform mission to uh, look at you know, organization of monasteries, corruption, uh, working more in more close contact with the papacy in the 1450s, where he was basically on the road for two years straight all over 
what is today Germany and the Low Countries, the Netherlands, and then back to Northern Italy, and then back to Germany, and he's on the road this whole time, really remarkably, still writing these remarkable philosophical and theological works, among other things. He ended his life in Rome. Um, he was in the Curia. He did not like it there. He was frustrated with corruption, he says. He begged tearfully to be allowed to go home. And they said, no, your service is too valuable, please stay. And he was, you know, he, he got votes in one of the, in one of the conclaves um, as a contender for the papacy. And he ended his life as um, a papal vicar when Pius II would travel. This is Nicholas of Cuse's library in Bernkastikus, which uh, can still be visited by scholars today. It's a remarkable place to visit. It's remarkable that it survived the bombings of the Second World War. Um, you can even open up Nicholas's copies of many works, including things like Meister Eckhart, and see his marginal annotations and see how he thought through his texts as he read them. Let's take a little bit about uh, a quick tour of some of the different things that Nicholas wrote on. It's really remarkable for someone who was outside of the academy, who had a full-time day job, who was doing you know, important things uh, for the church in the world, uh, very much uh, uh, the active life, who also at the same time sustained this contemplative life, who sustained this sense of uh, a, a kind of philosophical, theological through line and development in his own thinking about always chasing after, you know, how better to think the thought of God, how better, uh, as he says, to be on the hunt for wisdom. He named one of his late works, Benazio Sapiencio, on the hunt for wisdom. So Nicholas wrote several uh, works on church reform per se, Deacon uh, Vodancia Catholica, an important work coming out of his experience in the Council of Basel. Nicholas wrote over 300 sermons, which are now being edited. These are almost like mini philosophical treatises um, in Latin, a few in medieval German, but almost all of them in Latin. He wrote 12 different geometrical proofs, all attempting to solve the riddle of the quadrature of the circle, squaring the circle from 1445 on. He was interested in weights and measures and how to reform the church calendar, works of interreligious dialogue, De Pace Fidei and Kribatsu al-Qurani, these are the works on Islam and other religions that he's in dialogue with, but we're most interested in mystical theology and his philosophical treatises. And that's where I'd like to focus our attention today. Philosophy and theology are not sharply distinguished in Nicholas of Cusa. Some have a sort of sharper Christological or Trinitarian focus. Some of them remain, you know, more henological on theories of the divine one in the platonic tradition of that sort of inquiry. Some are really scrutinizing the boundary between mathematical styles of thinking and theological modes of thinking, and the boundaries between these. But zooming out, if we just focus our attention on his philosophical and theological works, there's uh, three periods. They're very easy to remember because they conform neatly to these decades that he was writing. Now, Many of his works, I mean, his earliest works are from the 1430s, but we really look at his development as a philosopher and theologian, beginning with the great work, De Docta Ignorantia, On Learned Ignorance. And that's really the work to start with. Um, it's long, but it's an excellent translation, and I'll show you um, some books you can pursue later at the end of our talk today. So the, in the early period, the middle period, and the late period up to his death in 1464. 
Early period begins with the Dr. Ignorancia and the sort of companion work that's even longer uh, on epistemology, on conjecture, which was this idea of how the human mind operates. There's a, a fascinating series, and I think a kind of understudied series of, I call them theological opuscula, but these short works that are very theologically rich and talk about the manifestation of God almost with phenomenological language. And this is where we also have that dialogue that I drew from at the beginning, a work on creation, the genesis, uh, on the, the philosophical meaning of the kind of almost like a big bang moment of the world's creation in 1447, capping off the early period. The middle period for Nicholas of Cusa was a, a, a moment of a kind of restart. And he's interested specifically in wisdom, the sapientia, in the working of the mind and reason, de mentis. And then uh, a, a final work in this trilogy, de statichis experimentis, which is really a theories of a, a an attempt at a universal theory of weight for scientific uh, harmonization of different disciplines. If we're wondering how these things hang together, it's because of wisdom 11, that God created the universe with number, uh, wisdom, number, measure, and weight. And so Nicholas thinks about measure, the measure of the mind, uh, the number, God's wisdom, and weight in this Dottichus experimentis. He's also experimented in this period with uh, uh, an important sort of double volume work. He said, I'll, I'll explain it once mathematically, and then I'll do a theological commentary on my own mathematical treatise and I'll put them together as a complement, one of the other, kind of you know, uh, two sides of the same coin. This is also the period of the great work, the greatest mystical work, uh, uncontroversially, De Visioni Dei. And this is where many readers of Nicholas begin. Uh, it, it's a, a work that he wrote as a gift to the community of those monks that he was in contact with, uh, just a beautiful, richly Augustinian meditation on how God sees and how we see God and how they're linked together for him in the figure of an icon, an icon of the face of Jesus that he gave as a gift. And the treatise was meant to be a kind of manual of how to animate one's own scene of the icon. His later works in the 1450s are um, contemporaneous with the rediscovery for him of the new translation of Proclus the great Athenian Neoplatonist in the fifth century. So Nicholas's encounter with Sophocles is an important part of the middle period. His late period, he's thinking about uh, divine names. How do we name God? And that's what we'll look at in a moment. Okay, so all that by way of overview. Now uh, that's a quick introduction to Nicholas's writings, his intellectual interests, his significance and his life. And now we'll get to the topic uh, of, that we're focused on today. And I'd like to propose sort of three ways of approaching this, this concept of Nicholas of Cusa on reason and wisdom, and how does he coordinate the, the, those two things in each of the periods, because it's important to read him, I think, uh, with some of these distinctions chronologically. In the early period, Nicholas is thinking about what are the limits of reason? How to use reason wisely is to attend to the limits of what reason can and cannot know. And here's this great rediscovery, revivification of the tradition of negative theology, Pseudodionysius, he's reading, Meister Eckhart, he's reading, but he has his own very distinctive take on this ideal of a learned or a well-taught or a kind of, let's say, deliberative ignorance that uh, finds wisdom in not knowing. In the middle period, he focuses his attention on vision, 
to measure. What does it mean to think? To think is to measure. What does it mean to measure? To measure is to see. And this is the path he follows to think in a new way about how God sees and even about how God measures. In the last period, the late period, he is on this uh, just fascinating quest to find the final definitive, but it's not final because he's always you know, inventing a new one, but the final, the definitive name for God, the great name that will unlock the riddle of who God is uh, in a way, just in one term. This is just the fascination of Nicholas. And he comes up with some remarkable results that I'll share with you in a moment. Okay, so our first topic. So we'll go through these three and I have some text to share, some images to share um, and we'll work our way through. The limits of reason. Nicholas has three great concepts that he's known for in the early period. Dr. Ignorancia, learned ignorance or well-instructed, docta, non-knowing or unknowing in the Dionysian sense. Second concept, the coincidence of opposites, coincidentia oppositorum. And the third, a more epistemological concept of conjecture. Let's take each of these in turn. So here's a passage, let's read it. It's, it's uh, you know, Nicholas is, is not always easy reading, although Divisione Day is a, is a beautiful place to start. But um, let's read the text and we'll get what we can out of it. Keep moving on. This is from uh, an early passage in On Learned Ignorance. And we'll see what he means. A finite intellect, therefore, cannot precisely attain the truth of things by means of a likeness. So the intellect, which is not truth, never comprehends truth so precisely, but that it could always be comprehended with infinitely more precision. So for Nicholas, the intellect is always reaching for greater precision, but it never arrives there. And that's this essential experience of human reason. It's reaching after perfect precision, but it never gets to the end of measure, right? One can always be more precise. Uh, the resolution can always be zoomed in more, right? You can always come closer to the goal of knowing something, but never perfectly. So he says, the intellect is related to truth as a polygon, to a circle. The inscribed polygon grows more like a circle the more angles it has. Yet even though the multiplication of its angles were infinite, nothing will make the polygon equal the circle unless the polygon is resolved into identity with the circle. What is he saying? The human mind is like a triangle, a square, a pentagon. And we can add as many sides as we wish, but we will never equal the perfect circularity of knowing God. And we can have kind of a, we would say today, a kind of asymptotic approach, right? Multiplying the sides even to infinity, but a polygon with infinite sides is still not the same as a perfect circle. But he does say it's only in a moment of union, of identity, of mystical union, where reason leaps beyond itself into knowing God in the, the intimacy of mystical union that, that reason will have a chance to think the thought of God. Let's look at uh, another concept from the Dr. Ignorancia from 1440 again. And this is his understanding of God, not God as a sort of uh, the circle where our polygon minds are trying to stretch after, but now this is an idea of God as a coincidence of opposites, that, that the thought of God lies beyond the coincidence of opposites. So he describes just a, a big background here. He's describing God in this treatise as an absolute maximum but he says, God is also surely an absolute minimum. 
And then he wants to say that God lies beyond the coincidence of an absolute maximum, the greatest possible, and an absolute minimum, the smallest possible. He writes, oppositions, therefore, apply only to those things that admit a greater and a lesser, but never to the absolutely maximum, for it is above all opposition. Therefore, because the absolutely maximum is absolutely and actually all that can be, and it is without opposition to such an extent that the minimum coincides with it, the maximum, it is above all affirmation and all negation, that Dionysian thing. Reason falling short of this infinite power cannot join together contradictories which are infinitely distant. Therefore, we see incomprehensibly above every act of reasoning that the absolute maximumness to which nothing is opposed and with which the minimum coincides is infinite. So Nicholas is thinking about what does it mean to know God if God lies beyond even the, not just our oppositions, but even the coincidence of all of the oppositions that structure our thought, how then could the human mind know an infinite God? And it's out of uh, these sort of thoughts about learned ignorance, the kind of you know, eternal questing after finding the perfect precision of measure, and the coincidence of opposites that Nicholas turns to mathematical science. This is a, a manuscript page that Nicholas had a hand in production of, uh, and he included geometrical images at the bottom of the page. So here we have a treatise on mystical theology that includes in the margins, literally we can zoom in here, diagrams about how to use geometrical mathematical objects to model the mind's own reasoning. This is a remarkable moment in uh, history of Christian mysticism where you know, Nicholas is not at all withdrawing from the world. He's rather saying in every moment of cognizing the world of creation and knowing the world and measuring the world scientifically. As we measure the world scientifically, we are at the same time exercising our reason and getting closer and closer toward thinking a thought of God because it's in the process of scientific measurement that we experience our finitude and our, our non-precision of our thinking so that God is that perfect precision out there that we can never quite reach. God is that circular truth that the human mind is a polygon is always striving after me. I think we'll skip this text for time, but if you're interested, it's in book one, section 11, where Nicholas talks about the importance of mathematical images, therefore, as an aid to the contemplative, right? So you could, you know, meditate through the words of scripture, perhaps through an icon to Christian art. Nicholas wants you to meditate on geometrical objects to activate the mind to glimpse beyond its capacities into the infinite that God is. Nicholas puts together some of these ideas in uh, later in De Dr. Ignorantia and also in one of these early works, De Conjecturis, and he builds upon uh, an anthropology that I think is helpful here just to clarify what he has in mind. And Nicholas says, you know, again, agreeing with Aristotle and Boethius, this, is not his, this, this part is not his own, that the human mind you know, works with sense and imagination and then reason is the next level, and then the intellect is the highest level. So Nicholas builds upon this. This is a, a commonplace in medieval Christian thought that we have the different disciplines, sense and imagination working in physics, the reason for mathematics, the intellect for theology, these three disciplines, or first philosophy. But Nicholas's innovation is to add on top of this 
a kind of principled distinction between what ratio can contribute and what intellectus can contribute. He says the domain of reason works with Aristotle's law of non-contradiction. We, we cannot assert A and not A being both valid you know, with this, in the same state with respect to the same phenomena. We can't say A and not A at the same time because mathematics works through a kind of binary logic, a discursive reasoning. By contrast, reason cannot stop there. And Nichols at some points faults some parts of scholastic philosophy for stopping there. But he says, in fact, mystical theology now enters in because it can operate in suspension of the Aristotelian law of non-contradiction. So Nichols provides a kind of philosophical account of what is mystical theology and how does it bring the mind still rational, but beyond the confines of binary reason and a kind of non-binary reason. And this is, you know, if, if reason moves from knowing to unknowing and experiences its failures in measure, its failures in precision, then intellect begins with unknowing and strives to know God from that state beyond contradiction. So this is the, uh, returning to the coincidence of opposite. Okay, that's very quickly. An overview of some of Nicholas's ideas on reason and wisdom and how he puts these things together in this early period. Let's move on to the middle period, ways of seeing. And again, some important concepts I'll just outline and we'll look at some texts and some images. Nicholas in 1450 in the Idiota de Sapientia and especially Idiota de Mente, uh, this is the untutored philosopher, the layman, the lay philosopher on the mind. Nicholas wants to speak about uh, what is the human mind? What does it mean to think? What does it mean to be a human? He says the mind measures itself. And he has a kind of etymological argument that perhaps the word means came from mensura to measure. But the mind constitutively measures. What does it measure? It measures itself. What does this mean? When we think mathematically, we are projecting a constructivist mathematics onto the cosmos so that what we, what we measure is to some extent met out in the material world, but it's also something that are, we would say with Immanuel Kant today, our categories of, you know, of intuitions bring out into the world. And so this is, these are some of the texts that those philosophers like Ernst Cassirer and the Neo-Kantians got very excited about because it sounds like Nicholas is anticipating Descartes or anticipating Kant in, their under, in his understanding of how the mind measures. But for Nicholas, he doesn't stop there. And he moves on in a meditation that says, to measure is to see, to see in a particular way, to see one's own, short, one's own shortcomings, but also to see the great capacity of the human mind as the image of God, as the imago Dei, to understand the world at a fundamental level through mathematics. Those meditations actually on measurement and on number and mathematics are what eventually lead Nicholas in 1453 to his uh, great breakthrough mystical treatise on the absolute vision of God and the icon. So if you're familiar with Divisione Dei, this mystical treatise, it actually it, it germinates out of his meditations on geometry and geometrical thinking. Let's look at a couple of these texts. This is from 1453 his great breakthrough treatise on epistemology, the layman on mind, or idiota de mente. For just as our mind is to the infinite eternal mind, 
so number from our mind is to that number. So like Augustine, Nicholas is not afraid to call God a number, capital N. And we give our name number to number from the divine mind, even as to the divine mind itself, we give the name for our mind. And we take very great pleasure in occupying ourselves with numbers as being an instance of our occupying ourselves with our own work. The human being was oriented toward mathematical measure to study the cosmos, to study the worlds of creation and the mathematical structures that inform it. But these do not bring us away from God. In fact, these are a kind of opportunity for an analogical participation in God's own numeration of the cosmos as creator. So again, in Nicholas, it's the sort of startling moment where uh, scientific rationality and enthusiasm about natural science is brought into direct contact with the mystical contemplative quest to see God. So this is not religion and science opposed. This is very much, uh, not even, I mean, harmonization even seems like leaving them too far apart. I think we'll skip this passage as well. This is from an important treatise in 1453 where Nicholas sort of connects the dots between seeing and measuring. And since we have the benefit of recording this, you can go back and take a peek at this uh, later. Okay, 1453, Nicholas receives some letters from a community of monks in the Benedictine Abbey of Pegrinze. Here it is today, and also a remarkable place to visit. And the Benedictine monks said, we've been reading the Dr. Ignorancia we are arguing over what you meant in that. We're not sure if love comes first or reason comes first. We're not sure how it's contemplatives to approach this, but we're interested for you to explain it further. And Nicholas sends them an icon as a gift. It's a special icon. It's an omnivoyant icon that sees no matter uh, where in the room you place yourself, the eyes follow you. He compares it to the Veronica. He, he cites and, and name checks this contemporary painter, Roger van der Weyden. Um, and you can see in the triptych here on the right side, Veronica holding the cloth with the face of Jesus imprinted. So he says, it's like a Veronica icon. It's a, uh, a, an omnivoyant image. These are called Mandulian icons that have a great tradition in Eastern Christianity. This is from 12th, I think 12th and 18th century Russian icon. But he uses this icon image, which he sends as an actual gift. And then he meditates upon what does it mean to see and to be seen through the eyes of the icon. He writes, what other Lord is your seeing when you look upon me with the eye of mercy than your being seen by me? In seeing me, you who are the hidden God, give yourself to be seen by me. No one can see you except in the measure you grant to be seen. Nor is your being seen other than your seeing the one who sees you. So what does it mean to see God? To see God is to be seen by God. It's that sort of iconological reversal where when we pray with icons, the icon gazes at us and we see God through the icon because the icon instantiates God's gaze upon us. God remains invisible, but the sight of God is to be seen by God. It's these sort of ideas uh, that have contemporary French phenomenologists like Emmanuel Falk or Jean-Luc Marion very excited because it sounds like 
the counts of the icon in Mariam's work. Nicholas continues, that which you seem to receive from one who looks on you is your gift as if you were the living mirror of eternity. That which one sees in this mirror of eternity is not a figure, but what one sees is the truth of which the one who sees is a figure. So Nicholas says, when we think about our concepts of God, about images of God, whether they are icons or whether they are conceptual names for God, whatever sort of image we use to think God, those figures, when we look into them, it's almost like a mirror and God allows that concept not to be false, not to be opposed, not to be distant, but God allows it to be a kind of mirror. And one gazes into the mirror and sees the reality and realizes that oneself, I am the image. So I think I'm using an image to see God, but then I realize I am the image. Okay, this brings us very rapidly to our last late period of naming God. And Nicholas is on this quest. Uh, I chose not to have a bunch of texts here because these can get very technical. Um, if you thought those other ones were more dense, these are, are even denser. But let me just review briefly these three names of God and then we'll, we'll wrap things up and I'll show you some further resources if any of this piques your interest in studying Nicholas of Cusa further. Um, Nicholas, starting in uh, the, around 1460 until his death in 1464, is experimenting with different names of God. The first he comes up with is the pos est, and this is from the Latin pose, the po uh, potentiality or power or potential, and then est, the verb, you know, uh, he is, it is, she is. So Nicholas says, God is not just pure actuality. God is the moment when the sort of raw potential of all things that could be became what they are, of holding together possibility and actuality. And so he verbally puts these two together, a potential, potentiality and its actualization into one term. It says this is a name that could name God as, in a single name, all potential brought into our reality. Uh, Posse Ipsum, just to skip to the last one, is when Nicholas even radicalizes this idea in one of his latest works, in his last work, um, where God is possibility itself. God is not the moment of actuality and form. God is pure possibility. There's a great um, uh, meditation on Nicholas's ideas in this regard uh, from Richard Carney, who says, this is Nicholas not saying the God who is, but the God who can be, I think that's very apt, the God who can be. But uh, I think Nicholas's most powerful name for God, and the one we'll end with today, is the non-aliod. This is from the Treatise in 1463 on the non-aliod. A non-aliod means non-other or not other. Now in 20th century, 21st century theology, God is often, uh, for various reasons, called the holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, the holy other, the completely other, that which is beyond our thought. And of course, that makes a lot of sense given the tradition of negative theology, that God is completely other than we can think. What is God? The holy other, that the totally other. Nicholas began with that position in the 1440s, and he never quite disregards it or contradicts it. But he says, you know, in fact, 
An even better name for God than the totally other, capital O, is the not other. And with this name, Nicholas says, God is uniquely the most intimate presence to every creature because God is not other than every creature. Not that God is identical with every creature, that would be a kind of crude pantheism, but God is not other than every creature uniquely. God is the only one who can do that by virtue of God being creator. So this is a formula that retains the negative. It is a moment of negative theology, but what it negates is the distance of God from every creature in order to intimate a kind of great proximity, a great, he says, bright, shining nearness of God to all things. God as the not other. So we'll end on that beautiful name of God. These are some resources. If you're interested for further reading, uh, the, the best one is Nicholas of Cusa, Selected Spiritual Writings in the Classics of Western Spirituality series from Paulus Press. It has a long, very uh, wonderful introduction uh, by uh, Lawrence Bond, the late Lawrence Bond, who translated it. It includes not just a Dr. Ignorantia, but some of the shorter works from the 1440s and Divisioni Dei uh, on the vision of God, the beautiful treatise that Nicholas gave to the Benedictine brothers with the icons. So that's definitely the place to start. There's also, if you're interested also in his writings on reform and uh, matters of church history and the councils and popes, what does Nicholas say about all these things? There's a wonderful collection in the Itaki Renaissance Library series published by Harvard University Press uh, by our friend and colleague, Tom Isbicki, just a few years out, a beautiful uh, facing page Latin English volume that I recommend to you all. In terms of more general introductions, the American Cusana Society uh, published several years ago, a wonderful introduction that you can find online, Introducing Nicholas of Cusa, A Guide to a Renaissance Man. And this looks at his works in church history, but also astronomy and mathematics and mystical theology, sort of all the different sides of this remarkable polymath, Nicholas. And then the classic uh, short biography by Eric Moyton, the great German Cusana scholar and historian, was translated a few years ago in a nice, uh, tidy, short paperback that you can buy that has uh, everything about Nicholas's life and times. There's also, if you wanna get into the Latin, there's a beautiful and now complete edition of Nicholas's mathematical writings, his uh, theological writings, and his uh, uh, sermons that you can see in the Opera Omnia, you can find those in the library, but there's also some websites here that are good places to go. The American Design Society uh, that I helped direct, we have several resources online. You can even become a member if you so choose. Uh, the Cusanus Portal, which has all of the Latin editions in a searchable format online, along with German and uh, I believe some French and English translations as well. And most of all, if you just want to get right into it, the Cusanus scholar Jasper Hopkins um, made a great gift to all of us by translating all of Nicholas's works into English, posting them in free downloadable PDFs on his website. And you wow. can roll through all of it there. So I'll uh, end my presentation here and I look forward to the Q&A period. Wonderful. Thank you, David, for these, these, this tremendous resource and, uh, and for this, this great presentation. A very, very heady one. Uh, 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 this, 
it you took us nicely through his life and all the different bases as well as through his his realm of really really difficult and impressive thought um there's a lot of things to talk about we've had a, a several different questions already popping up i'm sure we'll have some more the the one thing that i think and and this is reflecting some of the questions we're already receiving uh we, we, I, that that struck me is how uh Kuzanis doesn't quite fit in any one particular sphere and he's sort of like uh, Eckhart in some of these ways a, with a foot in the schools a foot in the monasteries a foot in administration and reform and, and sort of uh, moving throughout all those just like like Kuzanis is doing um in the presentation that that Professor McGinn gave us last time he referred to the the German mystical uh, tradition coming out of Eckhart with Johannes Tauler, Henry Sousa, coming into reformers like Luther. Uh, where does Cousin, where does Nicholas fit in with, with this larger Eckhartian mysticism? That's a great question and that's a good framework. I mean, I think of Nicholas um, uh, as sort of one of the, probably the most important figure between Eckhart and Luther in the German intellectual tradition. That's a, that's a quick and easy way to place him. Uh, sort of moving toward reform with one foot in, in, in the, you know, Rhinish mysticism uh, coming out of like Suzo and Tower. So uh, Kuza definitely was reading Eckhart, was thinking about Eckhart, was defending Eckhart. Um, there's traces of, of, among that uh, in his thought. But he does have this sort of turn. Um, I would say, you know, what's most interesting in Nicholas um, you know, broad strokes is he begins with apophaticism, but he also wants to move, he's always struggling to move from apophaticism to cataphaticism, or maybe better to sort of complexify the relationship between those different movements. And if Eckhart is sort of saying, you know, every image that we have, even if it's like the size of a small fly, right, gets, it gets between my eye and seeing God, that every image needs to be excised. Nicholas is thinking about what is a way to purify our images? This is why he's drawn to abstract geometrical triangles and circles. He says, you know, watch what happens if you take a polygon and multiply the sides and think about the border between an infinitely sided polygon right before it turns into perfect circularity. Infinitize your images in that way. Once they've been abstracted, then infinitize them and then sort of watch you know, the smoke trails as they disappear. And that is an important clue to how to see God and how to think God. So he's definitely coming out of the apophatic tradition and out of that German Rhinist tradition. In terms of the schools, just briefly, you know, we think of the sort of fourfold constellation of options from the, you know, 13th, 14th century up until the 16th, 17th century of Thomism, Scotism, via hmm. Moderna or nominalism, and then this other tradition, which is studied more and more today, the Albertist tradition out of Albert the Great. And that wow. represented a, you know, a, a return to a Neoplatonic reading, especially authors like Boethius, Pseudo-Dionysius. And uh, this is where Nicholas locates himself without kind of taking sides. He says, you know, he writes literally, what I have written moves far away from the usual habits of the schools but that said, he learned a great deal from the Albertist tradition. And if we had to locate him, that would be the place to locate him. You know, people who are reading uh, Latin Proclianism, um, Eckhart to some extent, 
and especially the Boethian tradition that Nicholas's mm -hmm. particular path is hmm. And it seems like Nicholas does a, a, a nice move, yeah, where he sort of outflanks a lot of the, the big questions of his day in some ways. We, we had one question on, on the, uh, the question of universals and particulars, the sort of nominalist turn of, of some of the universities. One of our, uh, our attendees asked, does, does Nicholas take a position on the question of universals? Um, yeah, on the question of the universals and, and to what extent he adopts a kind of nominalism. At, mm -hmm. Yeah, so he, um, this is a hotly debated topic. It's the uh, question still open. It, Nicholas sort of is both yes and no. I mean, he's, he's uh, in many ways very much a realist. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about the problem of universals briefly and kind of enigmatically, uh, but he's clearly thinking specifically about it. How could he not? That in 1440 in De Ignorantia, there's a passage in book two of De Dr. Ignorantia where he dis dis discusses this uh, specifically, I think it's 2426. But at the same time, he's very interested in language and in naming and uh, in uh, the way that names are assigned and reassigned and named in better ways. And so they're all sort of, uh, it's as if he's thought hard about the nominalist position and he's looking for a kind of coincidence of opposites between a realism and anomalism on the question of universes. There might, most scholars think he sort of drifted more in the direction of nominalism as his thought matured, proceeded into the 1460s. You get a little bit more of a turn away from realism, uh, but that's, um, uh, Gerhard Krieger has written some good essays on that, K-R-I-E-G-E-R -E -E in the German scholarship on Nicholas. Thank you. And moving into some of his, his technical uh, uh, thinking on this, as, as you brought us into some really difficult topics and really difficult areas. Matthew asked a question about this, this book on, on learned ignorance, mm. one and two. And, and it's, a, it's a little bit of a, a long question, so I'll try and read, us, read through it. And if, and if it doesn't come out clearly, let me know and I'll, I'll try again. Sure. Matthew asks, in Dr. Ignoratia, one and two, it's the genuine quantitative infinity of the created universe that anticipates the absolute infinity of God. Does this mean that it is fitting, in Kuzanis' view, to think of the universe as temporarily beginningless and endless, having no start or finish, even though it has its beginning and end in God? Only the intelligibility of a genuinely quantitatively infinite universe would be an anticipation of the absolute maximum, as Nicholas calls God. Is that so? Hmm. Yeah, let me just provide some background. That's a great question. And I think there's a text where Nicholas tries to answer it himself. It's probably outside of De Dr. Ignorantia. But De Dr. Ignorantia, I, I probably should have said, it comes in three books. Hmm. The first book is on God. The second on the cosmos and the third on the incarnation and Christology in the church. And Nicholas says, God is the absolute maximum. The universe is a contracted maximum. And the moment of the incarnation is the unique intersection point between the absolute maximum and the contracted maximum, without which neither of them would be thinkable. So this is a kind of cosmic Christology where Jesus represents 
he uses the term, for better or for worse, the concept of Jesus. It's a very awkward Latin term. But the concept of Jesus represents the intersection point between God and the cosmos, between the absolute maximum and the contracted maximum. So Matthew's right. There are ways in which what Nicholas says about God's infinity and the world's infinity need to intersect. Uh, and the question of the temporal beginning of the cosmos in the creation is one that Nicholas himself, I mean, Eckhart thought a lot about as well, the principium, what was the sort of, the mo you know, the moment of beginning, of distinction, uh, difference. Nicholas treats these uh, most closely, these questions, in a treatise from 1444-45 called De Dato Patris Luminum, on the gift of the Father of Lights, on the gift of the Father of Lights, you can find it in its English PDF translation on Jasper Hopkins' website. And it's also published in a volume that Hopkins published in a book form. Um, and in this treatise, it's, it's a, basically a theological commentary thinking about Pseudo-Dionysius, thinking about Eckhart, who he references, and a commentary on James 1.17, that, that, that God is the father of lights. This is a phrase that Pseudo-Dionysius uses. But in this, Nicholas very carefully thinks about what does it mean that the universe as God's creation is a beginning without a beginning. Principium sine principio. And he takes it from there. You can look into that. But he's thinking specifically about time, eternity. Is the universe eternal? Is it finite? Is it, you know, is it purely temporal? Is it both temporal and eternal? And he basically comes down and says, like the word made flesh, the universe has an eternal aspect and a temporal aspect. So I read that as a sort of Christological solution hmm. to the question of the temporality of the universe. It has to be a both and. That's a contrary that challenges the limits of our binary reason. But of course, he's aware of that. And that's a lesson that he would have us draw. But that's a good question. That's the text to look into for that. Thank you. That's really helpful. And, and with the source to look through as well. Um, uh, we're running out of time, but maybe just a couple more questions. Uh, we, you, you mentioned several times his, his own uh, spiritual foundations, his, his experience in, in various religious houses. And um, uh, I, I just love how uh, he sends an icon to yes. answer this, this rather technical, difficult theological question. Uh, we have a question from Leah on the question of, of Nicholas and, and the icon. Leah asks, can you please reflect on, uh, well, on your own experience or how Nicholas would have his experience, the resonance between the Sundarium, the Veronica veil, and Amago Dei in the vision of God, Visio Dei. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very important part of this treatise. So I encourage anyone who's interested um, it's probably the best place to start to read Nicholas. It's on the vision of God, 1453. It's in the Paulus Press, the Classics of Western Spirituality series. And Nicholas does give an icon as a gift. And he wants the brothers to, read, to, to view and to be viewed by the icon in a way to overcome their own quarrels. So it's also uh, a bit of a social teaching as well, of the way that God views us humans in, our, in the church, in our differences in community, God's vision overcomes our distances even when we cannot. So that's another moment of kind of touching the ground of these ideas of Nicholas, these very you know, abstract and difficult ideas. On the question of the Sidarium and, and the image of God, 
that's an essential part of that treatise, that it's very specifically an image of the face of Jesus, which sees all with its eyes, but it's an icon of the face of Jesus. And it's very important that when one looks into the icon, he says, it's like looking into a mirror in which you see the reality of which you are the image. And that concept has several levels of resonance, but one of them is the Christological and the sense of the Imago Dei that Leah is identifying is absolutely right. When you look into the face of Jesus, you see the human, right? You see the perfect humanity of which you are in your humanity, the image. But by the same token, because you're looking into, he says, a painted image, an image with texture, an image that we can imagine might have had you know, some sort of light properties, some gold, some reflection, some, some tactility to it. You're looking into a very constructed painted image. You're not looking into an abstract denuded geometrical image, but you're looking into a very painterly crafted image. And uh, that the sort of iconic scene that God's vision in all things makes possible is one that gives power to the created image. This is a cataphatic moment for Nicholas, that the image doesn't need to be destroyed in order to see God in a more perfect way. God gave himself in the image, in Jesus, in the humanity of Jesus. And uh, Nicholas meditates that in a very profound way to think about moving from apophaticism to cataphaticism, or better, as I said before, as a way to think of them together. But not, this is one of the distinction points from mm. Eckhart. Mm. I would just say, you know, beware the image. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Uh, we, we're running a little out of time, but we have, I want to ask two more questions. Mm -hmm. uh, you gave us several different ways of seeing Nicholas, uh, yeah, Nicholas's uh, uh, overall relevance in his period as a hit figure, as, mm -hmm. as the first modern or, or, or anticipating some of the mathematical understandings of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. We have a question on, uh, from Sean, whom I actually think you know, uh, about Cassir. Uh, Sean asks, uh, Cassier said that Nicholas was the point of departure for viewing the Renaissance humanist philosophy as a systematic unity. Is there still truth in that statement? Or is Nicholas too unique to serve as the exemplar of Renaissance humanism? Um, yeah, I think, I, I, I don't think um, both Renaissance humanism, scholasticism, and you know, mystical contemplative traditions are, are all three important contexts for looking at Nicholas. Mm. I think we have to bring all of them together as an adequate context. I think Kassira's view, and this is in the 1920s, if memory serves, that he's writing about that, is still very marked by an earlier reading of Nicholas that really focused on um, as, as an, you know, a sort of proto-Kantian epistemology, a proto-Cartesian epistemology, and uh, just thought, you know, he, here was a kind of modern who found himself woken up, you know, in the late Middle Ages, but didn't really belong to his time. And I think we've moved beyond that. This is also, Kassir is writing his famous book on Nicholas and Renaissance philosophy before the critical edition, was, it was just getting underway. So he has these very bold readings of how Nicholas is a proto-modern before the work had been done in the edition. Now, we're on the other side of that. It's very clear that Nicholas is early, late medieval. He's reading handbooks of sermons. You know, he's reading uh, Bonaventure. He's, 
You know, he's reading Raymond Lull, he's reading 12th century Chartrian Platonism, reading all kinds of sources. His sources are medieval. What he does with them is something surprisingly proto-modern. But to say that he's sort of emblematic of a whole period, I think is probably a step too far. Too far. But I think what's most interesting is how, what did he do as a reader, as a kind of uh, connoisseur of all these different medieval mystical texts and medieval philosophical theological traditions, how did he stitch them together and end up with something that does admittedly on some, time, some days sound like a Descartes or an Immanuel Kant? How did he do that? And what does that tell us about the porosity between the medieval early modern border that we kind of take for granted, right? If, if with those ingredients, you know, obviously finished before 1401 when he was born, he built something that anticipates the 17th century. Mm. What, that's remarkable. How did he do that? I, I'm trying to figure out myself still, how did he do that? And what does that tell us about how we think about Middle Ages and, and about modernity in particular. Yeah, and the capacity of his mind to take all these ingredients and not merely be a compiler, but to, to synthesize something new out of that. It's just amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and as far as the Renaissance humanism, that's also some, a question we can keep in mind in the, in the future presentations that we'll have, be having on reason and beauty in the Renaissance. But as we finish off this uh, course, we began with Gregory the Great, who's also famous for a kind of learned ignorance of his, of his own, that he, he went to the schools, but then, but then he left and he turned to scripture and prayer in a, and, and, in a, and a very, well, in a very robust way. Uh, we've, we've, we've heard a lot about mathematics and, and images. I'm wondering where scripture behind uh, maybe behind some of these things or on the side, where scripture fits into, uh, in, into Nicholas's thought. Hmm. Well, it's all over his thought. Um, it, you know, the, the turn, the, the, the proposal that mathematical images are especially valuable for Christian contemplatives, that's just a very strange idea. It remains a strange idea. It was strange in the 15th century. And so that's where we focus, that's, that's some distinctives to focus upon to understand what Nicholas is doing different. But that said, He's constantly quoting scripture throughout. Um, he's, you know, all of his homilies, of course, would begin with the, the reading for the day. Um, his, his homilies, as one scholar says, they're like a workshop where he's, you know, in the back, kind of in the shed, you know, hammering out some ideas, which then you can watch. It happens every, every year, every, every decade, where the ideas that he first encountered in exegesis of scripture in a homily will find their way into one of these treatises. Mm -hmm. So there's really, uh, that's, that's the wave of scholarship that we're in right now in Kuzana studies, is drawing connections between this rich collection of you know, 300 plus homilies that are now edited and the philosophical theological works, right? Precisely in the opposite direction from Kassira, who was just trying to isolate the moments of the kind of, you know, the philosophical sunshines in the Middle Ages, like the clouds, they pass up. You know, now it's really much more of a focus on uh, suturing together uh, the, the corpus of his writings. How did the geometrical proofs relate to the contemplative works? How did the homilies inform the conceptual ideas and, and these ideas of reform as well as part of the myth? Wonderful. Well, I think, I think we have to, uh, to cut it off there, but 
With a presentation like this, this would certainly reward repeated viewings in going through some of the meaty concepts of, of, uh, of Nicholas. Uh, Professor Davidson, thank you so much for this presentation. Thank you uh, for this, yeah, these, these very interesting answers. And uh, we, we might look forward to uh, the, the upcoming series, Reason and Beauty, in, in a, almost two weeks from now, Tuesday, January 16th, seven o'clock central with uh, uh, Jason uh, Alexander and um, Ariel uh, Saber on Dante as poet and philosopher. Uh, yeah, thank you again. Yeah, in, indeed, uh, Professor Albertson, let me thank you on behalf of uh, Lumen Christi and all our viewers here. Um, and I'm especially grateful uh, that on behalf of uh, the Kuzanu Society, you've helped spur on this next series. Um, so we have a lot to thank you for. Um, and let me just reiterate that invitation to all of your viewers to join us for that event um, and join us next week um, for Christians in Times of Catastrophe, Augustine's City of God on Tuesday, uh, June 9th at 1 p.m. Uh, that's 1 p.m. This way we can accommodate scholars who are not just coming here from the U.S., but also from abroad, from Europe. Um, and we're going to continue this alteration between 7 p.m. Um, lectures and then um, afternoon lectures so that we can ensure that you, our viewers, have some of the best scholarship um, available to you. Um, our work is only made possible um, through the support of donors and you can become a supporter of our work today to make programming like this um, uh, free, both to viewers like you, but also to students um, by visiting www.lumenchristi.org donate. And please help us to spread the word about this great programming by sharing our emails or posting to um, social media today. Thank you again and have a wonderful week.